uh, chapter 41. Uh, if you open to Psalms, which is about the middle of your Bible, and head towards the right, uh, you'll start heading towards uh, the prophets, and we want to be uh, in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 41. Two weeks ago, we finished uh, the book of Acts, and uh, next week we'll start the Christmas series. So I thought uh, this would be a good time for kind of a, a one-off, if you will, rather than a whole series, but a one-off uh, from the book of Isaiah, which uh, this section of Isaiah, I find, is just to be a, a delightful and, and fun section of the Word of God to look at. Let's, uh, let's read Isaiah 41, verses 21 uh, to 29. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do harm or do good, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing, an abomination in he who chooses you. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall come upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortars as the potter treads clay. He who declared it uh, from the beginning, he that he might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right, or excuse me, who has declared it from the beginning, that we may know, and, and beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. When I look, there is no one among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just thank you for your word and we ask that you would speak to us today, that we would delight in you, that we would see that you are the first and the last, that you are the true and living God. Uh, And the idols of, of the nations and the false beliefs and other religions that are out there, they are nothing. They do not worship You and they do not bring us into Your presence. Only the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as our ransom and as our mediator in heaven brings us before You. And we praise You for this. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're in a passage of Scripture uh, and part of it as a larger section of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is telling about how Israel will go down into Babylon and after she's in Babylon, he gives hope. And part of this hope is that God will bring them back from Babylon. And even more part of this hope is that God is reminding them that He is God and the idols in that nation of Babylon are not. So God puts the challenge to the idols. Set forth your case. Prove that you are gods if you really are. I could not resist using an example from Star Trek this morning. In Star Trek V, they go to this planet and they find this all-powerful being who is kind of trapped there. And a couple of the, the, one of the villains and a couple of the heroes start to be convinced that, that this is God. 
And they go down to the planet and they see this face in all his shining glory. And, and he says to them, how did you get here? And the, the villain says, we came on a starship. And he says to them, the, this God says to them, bring your starship close that I may get on it and travel the heavens. And everybody's standing there going, oh, wow. This... And, and Kirk goes, does one of these. And he steps forward. He goes, excuse me, excuse me. I, I just have a question. What does God need with a starship? And of course, the, the being, you know, says, uh, who, who is this? Who is this creature? And Kirk says, aren't you God? Don't you know? And then the one person, the villain, says, oh, he lacks faith. And Kirk says, I seek proof. And uh, the, the kind of the comic relief, the Dr. Bones goes up to him and he says, Jim, you don't go up to the Almighty and ask Him for ID. But we are in a passage of Scripture where God, the living God, goes before these false gods and He asks them for ID. Prove your case. Set forth proof. What do you do that is God-like? Just, just tell me the future. Can't do that? Well, we'll just do something then. Anything, really. It's this sort of what does God need with a starship kind of moment. And our main point this morning is this. Idols are nothing, but God is the great and mighty one. Uh, sometimes we think that in our day and age we don't have idols. You can't go down into York City and find like a Baal pole or an Asherah pole or, or Marduk like you maybe could walk into to ancient Babylon. But, but we do have idols. Scripture calls greed, the love of money, an idol. Anything that, that is good that we take and we make it as our ultimate source of pleasure or happiness or or comfort, or security, it can become idol-like to us. Anything that we hold is more of a priority than God. We need to remember that idols are nothing, but God is the great and mighty one. So, idols cannot do anything, especially tell us what is to come. This is, this is part of the section of Isaiah, and there's a couple other times where he, he challenges the gods uh, Isaiah, or God speaking through Isaiah, brings to them a challenge, and he's, and he's often humiliating him, them. He's often showing them these things. You're going to get to Babylon, Israel, and you're going to think, I let you go, because I let you go into judgment. And you're going to think, I'm not the real God, and maybe we should go and worship Marduk and the Babylonian gods since we're here in their cities. And you need to know that these things are not Real. And so God challenges the idols. Verse 21 Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. You'll notice here the name of the Lord. For set forth your case, thus saith the Lord. And most of your English translations will probably put it in all capital letters. And, and what that means is that's often how the English translates the divine name of God, Jehovah, or, or the letters. Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, which is the, the sacred name of God. The, the one that God appears to Moses and says, the I am who I am. If you condense that to what we think is just the verb of that, you, you get the initials Yahweh. 
This is God, the God of the covenant, the God of the people of Israel, who says to Moses, say this to the people, the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is the name which God has revealed Himself to His people. This is His covenant name. He is their God and they are His people. And so He says in this divine name with all of its authority, set forth your case to the idols, as it were. The second is, He says, uh, bring your proof, says the King of Jacob. And so you remember that, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob uh, becomes Israel, the father of the twelve sons, which becomes the nation. And, and God is their true king. Yes, of course, at various times they had earthly kings that God established, but, but God was the high king. God was the one who ruled over them. God was the one to whom they owed their allegiance. And so you have the great royal king, his people in a foreign land in Babylon, looking like he is impotent and powerless because he let them go there, and he challenges these gods. He says, in effect, if you're tempted to think that I'm not God and these things are God, let's have a debate. It's, it's kind of like in those, those moments where if you're having a dispute and you say, fine, we're, we're going to court. Or sometimes when you're, when you're a kid, uh, someone says something to you and you just kind of fold your arms up and you say, yeah, we'll prove it. This is what God says to these idols. If, if you're real, prove it. Let's go to court. Make your case. And, and of course this is polemical. We know these gods aren't real. We know they're not going to say anything. But, but how do you prove the point to, to Israel? How do you prove the point to people tempted to fall astray? To tempted to think that, that God forgot them. That God has abandoned them. He reminds them that those other things that they're looking for safety from, that they're finding their security in, that they're looking to protect them in this nation, they are nothing. Let's go to court, God says. And so he brings the first challenge. Look at verses 22 to 23. Let them tell the future. That's challenge one. Tell the future. Let them bring them. And tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God. So here's the challenge, okay? If you're a God, act like it. Gods tell the future. I can, God says, why don't you do it? This is kind of like Kirk saying to that being, um, don't you know? Aren't you God? What do you need with a starship? Well, don't you know? Can't you tell the future? Just, just give me something. You know, maybe if he lived today, he would say, just, just give me the football scores on Sunday so that we might know that you know the future. Just, just even tell us something small. Isaiah 44, 6 and 7, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. Here, 
constantly reminded in Isaiah that these gods, air quotes there, are not gods at all. There is no other god. There isn't this heavenly council up in heaven where there are all these gods and they're vying for power and sometimes one wins and sometimes the others win. That's what the ancients believed. And God said, there are no gods beside me. There are angels. There are demons. There are created things. There are the stars. But there are no gods besides me. Isaiah 44, 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Isaiah 45, 20 and 21. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Isaiah 46, verses 9-11. to Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. Why can God tell the future? God doesn't just tell the future because He can look ahead and see what's going to happen. God can tell us the future, declare things before they are going to happen, because the future is in His hands. He carries it forward. He is the one that accomplishes His purpose. If He says Israel is going to go down into Babylon, be captured and taken away, it will happen. If he says there will be a man, Cyrus, which he does later on in Isaiah, who will bring Israel out and back to the land and the temple will be rebuilt, it will happen. Why? Because God's purposes stand. You cannot stand before God and thwart His plan. You cannot force Him to change His mind. You cannot direct Him or give Him counsel. You can't say to God, God, you know, that's a really great idea you have there, but you know what? Maybe we should try it this way. Or I've got some advice for you. Have you thought of this, God? His purposes will stand. He's infinite. Obviously, then that means He knows more than us. He knows all things. And when He carries forward His plan, He carries forward all things according to to His purposes. Even the horrible, horrid tragedy of Israel being destroyed by Babylon served the plan and purpose of God. Now, God is not the author of evil. But God used the wickedness of an evil man to serve His purposes. King Nebuchadnezzar, who was basically like the Hitler or Stalin of his day, God used it 
And God said, you have not won, O Babylon. Your gods have not won. And how do you know this? Because I predicted and told ahead of time that Babylon would come. And now I'm telling you ahead of time, someone will come and bring Israel back. And later on in Isaiah 52 and 53, he says, a servant of the Lord will come, Jesus, and he will redeem his people. God lays down his plans before the foundations of the earth, and he will accomplish them. Ephesians 1.11 tells us God, quote, works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is saying to these idols here, just just do what I do. You've seen me do it. If you're God, I, can't you do the same thing? In fact, God kind of ups the ante here, if you will. He ups the challenge. He says, just, just do anything, really. You know, these, these idols that have to get carried around by people? Just, why don't you just move from one side of the room to the other? Look at the end of verse 23. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. He's, he just finally is saying, just do something. Have some purpose that you can establish or accomplish. Act in some way. Do you ever notice how people run, who run after idols always after the effect are able to explain how it was the hand of God? And yet for Christians, we knew hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, the important details of what it would look like. And Isaiah is actually writing about 120 years before Israel would go into captivity. And even before they went into captivity, Jeremiah said, you will be in captivity for 70 years. And as Daniel is in captivity, 70 years comes to an end and he realizes God's about to fulfill his word because God can do what He purposes to do. Do you believe that? That God is in control of all things? We fully admit we don't understand that. We don't understand all the ins and outs. And sometimes we might look upon what God is doing and we might say, I don't understand why you're doing this. But we trust. We trust that God is God. There is no one beside Him. And He knows what He's doing. If these idols can't go up before God and give Him counsel and give Him advice and tell Him what to do, how much more do you think we as as mere human beings can't go before God and say to Him, why are you doing it this way? How dare you do this? You need to explain this to me so I can understand what Isaiah says earlier in chapter 41, particularly verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. With all that they were going to go through, God had not abandoned them. He was the living God. And He cared for His people. When you and I know that God has a purpose for all things, even when we don't know what that purpose is, we can stand and say, I will not fear Because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You're the good shepherd. An image, actually, that Isaiah picks up on elsewhere in the book. Consider this, then, that God 
is God and the idols are nothing. There are a lot of fun times in scripture when God challenges these idols. Another great example is, is remember the Elijah on Mount Carmel? Remember how they go up there and he tells the, the people worshiping Baal, he says, you know, make, make an idol, put your, or excuse me, make an altar, put your calf on it and, and just call down fire from heaven. And they spend all morning, these, these Baal worshippers, trying to call down this fire. And, and to show that they're such serious worshippers, they, they start cutting themselves, which is grotesque, but, but it's their way of trying to motivate their God to say, just, just burn this lamb or, or this bull. Remember then when Elijah goes and he, he's like, okay, let's up the ante here. He's like, let's pour some water on this. Let's soak the altar and build a pit around it. And God, the minute he prays, comes down with fire and burns that altar. But I love in the middle of this, at about noon, it says, in 1 Kings 18, it says, At noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, which means exactly what it sounds like, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and you must awake him. Uh, Elijah's saying, maybe he's in the bathroom. Shout a little louder so he can hear you. Maybe he's taking a nap. Kind of wake him up. You know how like your kids, uh, some of you moms know this, you don't have a moment of peace. You, you go into your bedroom and you close the door. And, and even sometimes when you go into the bathroom and you close the door, the kids come to the door, Mom! That's what Elijah's telling these people to do. Just cry out a little more. Say, Baal, please hear us. Maybe he'll listen. You just have to laugh at this. This is what Isaiah's doing. Oh, if you're God, just tell the future. Do something. Show us your, your big muscles and act. He goes on later in Isaiah to show the folly of, of um, idolatry. He says you take a, a piece of wood, a log, and you cut it in half, and, and you spend meticulous time carving that idol, and you, you, you think about how a carver works, and they, they start with big pieces, and then they get down to the meticulous slicing in the very little details, and, and you, you put that up on your stool, and you say, oh, this is a God, we worship this, this provides for me. Then you take that other half of that exact same log, and you throw it on the fire, and you warm yourself by it. And you, you let it cook your food. What's the difference? They're two chunks of wood. He mocks the idols. You and I cannot trust and rely on things that are not God. I just hope it, one of the things that we, we walk away from this passage with is a sense of the majesty of God. Look at what God is. Look at what He does. He, he declares the end from the beginning. He lays down His purposes. He accomplishes them. And most of all, He does this in the Lord Jesus Christ where we are the ones who rebelled against Him and He in His majesty loves us and sends His Son to die for us. But not only that, we, we are like Israel walking around and, and thinking about other idols and He says to us, I'm the real God. And I will show it to you in the Son who comes to die for you. Look at what God does. 
He controls the whole world. How awesome is His authority. The, we take for granted the laws of nature. The laws of nature work every day because God is the lawgiver. That if God was not upholding these things by the word of His mighty power, creation would fly apart at the seams. There are real laws of nature, right? There are things that we count on every day to work. But why do you know that physics works the same every day? Ultimately, it's because God is God. The sun will come up tomorrow. Unless the Lord returns, of course, the sun will come up tomorrow because God is God. And the scriptures say that in imagery, it says he has a covenant with the sun. It's, It's personification. It's I make a deal with the sun. It has to do what I say comes up because God is God. Can the idols do this? Can other gods, other things in our society bring us real comfort, real security? No. Consider then some of the other things in our life that we may rely upon for the future, for security, for contentment. Tim Keller says, uh, in effect, that the idol can be, an idol can be even a good thing that God has made that we turn into an ultimate thing. Sometimes we take the good gifts of God. That piece of wood is a good gift from God and people fashion it into idols. Money can be a good gift from God as long as we don't trust money. Sometimes God needs to give you some money to pay your bills or or He gives you clothes. Those can be good things. He gives you a house. That can be a great thing. But you can't trust your house. If a storm comes, even just the, 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 a light wind, not even a hurricane, that, that house can be blown over like the three little pigs. Huff and puff and it's gone. You can't trust the things that God has given you. But you can trust God. We need to remember that. We need to to be careful that we don't fall into the traps of the world. The sort of keeping up with the Joneses. That this is when I've arrived. That this will make me secure. That this will bring me comfort. That if I just have these things, I don't have to worry. And Scripture says, if we just have God, we don't have to worry. Charles Spurgeon says something to the effect that one at the beginning of one of his sermons, he says, the phrase, fear not, appears in Scripture like violets sprinkled throughout a garden. Think of the little purple violets that crop up everywhere. Spurgeon is saying, this idea of fear not, it's all over the pages of Scripture. And why do we fear not? Because God is God and we are not. Oftentimes, what we fear, what worries us the most, can be an indicator of where we're putting our hope, of what kind of maybe hidden or secret idols we're cherishing and holding on to, what we're not trusting God with. Notice then, second this morning, that God tells what is to come and He brings it to pass. God's going to actually stir up a guy named Cyrus and He's going to 
bring them to deliver Judah. And I think that's what's being hinted at here in verse uh, 25. Later on in the book of Isaiah, he'll actually name Cyrus by name. Uh, But it says, I stirred up one from the north. Uh, So Persia is sort of northeast. Well, if you're looking at this, it's sort of northeast of where Babylon is. Think of uh, how uh, Iran is kind of north and to the east of, of where Baghdad is today. I stirred up one from the north. He has come from the rising of the sun, which would be in the east. And he shall call upon my name, and he shall trample on the rulers as mortars and as the potter treads clay. So later on in Isaiah, Isaiah 45.1, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. And he talks about raising Cyrus up. It says in 44.28, Cyrus, quote, He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So in the book of Ezra, This is several hundred years after Isaiah writes this. And they're coming out of exile. We read about the coming of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, this is the divine name, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of heaven. This is a a typically pagan king saying this. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Isaiah predicted this. We, we tend to read the Bible uh, and, and don't take this the wrong way. We, we, kind of, we have the whole thing, right? It's finished. You have to imagine that there was a, a large gap of time between when Isaiah said this and when Ezra heard it and wrote it down. God tells the future. It's in His job description. That's what gods do. And that's why the Lord is the only God, the living and true one, who carries these things forward. His purposes shall stand. Only God, then, can declare things before they happen. Look at chapter uh, 41, verses 26 and 27. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, He is right. This is a rhetorical question. The people are supposed to say, God did. The Lord. The God of the covenant. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's kind of like when you say to your kids, am I your parent? They know the answer. The answer is yes. And if they don't know the answer, they get in trouble, right? The the answer is, the Lord did this. There's almost this Are you really surprised? Don't you know who God is? Don't you know that that 400 years before they came out of Egypt, even before they went down to Egypt, God planned and purposed and told His people, you will go down to this land where you will be for 400 years and I will bring you up out of it as a nation? And God did it. You think about that. 400 years. That is longer than the nation of America has been around. Do you think George Washington 
the first president of the United States, could have predicted what would happen in 2016. Forget the fact that it's been a crazy year. Just pick any year. Do you think he could have predicted it? No. And that's small compared to God and His power and the establishment of His purposes. Verse 27, I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. This good news here is that that the captivity of Babylon will come to an end. A, A herald will come and will say, Make straight the way of the Lord. He'll bring them out on a smooth highway. It's actually language that also gets fulfilled by John the Baptist. There's kind of a, the first thing God does is He brings the nation out of Babylon. And then another four or five hundred years later, He brings John the Baptist. God is not slow in fulfilling His plans, but His timing is not like ours. But there's this herald, there's this gospelly good news that God says even before they go to Babylon, I, your Redeemer, your Savior, I'm going to get you out of this. How awesome is that? And Isaiah uses it to to point our attention to the the full Gospel. To the Lord Jesus Christ who gets us out of not a captivity in Babylon, but a captivity to our sin. So you have in Isaiah 41, 2-4, Who stirred up one from the east who victory meets at every step? He gives up the nations before Him so that He tramples kings under feet. He makes them like dust with His sword and driven stubble with His bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths His feet have not trod. Who performed and has done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, first and last, the last. I am He. I don't want to get too technical with the biology here, but imagine what it takes to call forth the generations. My wife and I met at Victory Valley Camp. And there were a whole bunch of little details that, that came together for us to meet. If just one of them had changed, there is a good chance that Lily, Elizabeth, Samantha, and Morgan would not be here. If just one thing had changed in my grandfather's life when he was in World War II. Lily, Elizabeth, Samantha, and Morgan probably wouldn't be here. Imagine the intricacies of the planning and purposes of God if He can call forth the generations before they exist. It's amazing. And you break that, you can go back in time a lot and work that out to today. You can think about how just biology works and work that out. It boggles the mind. And God is in control. And God does these things. He says in Isaiah 40, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Part of this great announcement of the Gospel 
is this, behold your God. Look at how awesome God is. Isaiah 52, verses 5, 6, and 7. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. What does the Gospel announce? It announces to us salvation. It says to us, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But the Gospel isn't primarily a message about you. It's a message about God. God is this awesome Savior. Won't you believe in Him? It's not about you because we're wicked and sinful. The focus isn't on you. We certainly live eternally with God because of the Gospel. We go to heaven when we die because of the Gospel. But it's not about you. It's about God. God reigns. And how does He establish this rule? When, when all of creation looks like it's rebelling. When, when Babylon's when wicked nations look like they're winning, what does God do? He exercises His mighty arm, Isaiah says. He comes down because He hears the cries of His people, He says to us in Exodus. He sends His Son because He loves us and He is going to redeem us. And the Son dies on the cross. And the Son rises again from the dead. And the Son in His resurrected body ascends back up into heaven so that Jesus gets all of this glory. And we don't look around and pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, this Gospel is awesome. Aren't we something special? We say, God reigns. Look at this kingship that He has. That He would tell the end from the beginning that, that His purposes would be to take those of us who are filthy in our sins and, and send a Savior and, and bring us out of our captivity to this sin. That He would be wondrous in this way. And that He would tell us ahead of time that this is His purpose from before the foundations of the world. Why does God do this? Because His glory and His majesty are like no other. God doesn't do it because you're someone special. He cares about you. Don't get me wrong. You're His creation and He loves you. But all of us, we rebelled. And God didn't have to do anything. He could have said to Israel, this Babylon, this Nebuchadnezzar, man, this is what you guys deserve. You're on your own. You walked away from me. You worshipped other gods. But He doesn't do that because His majesty is awesome. And who can comprehend His grace? 
we need to remind ourselves that the God of the Bible is the living and true God who has revealed himself in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, he's writing to Corinth, and in Corinth they had lots of idols, and you could go to the market, and you could buy meat sacrificed to idols, and you could walk down the street and see people worshiping, and you could have prostitutes that are believing they're worshiping their God through their sexual deviancy and acts. Paul says to people living in that kind of pagan world, he says this in 1 Corinthians 8, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, you can almost see the kind of air quotes there, although people believe there are lots of gods, he says, as indeed there are many gods, in the English even they put quotes, and many lords, In other words, even though we walk down the street and we see these gods and lords and they think they rule over all these various things in creation, he says this, yet for us. And he says that because we're God's people and we understand who God really is. He says, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Why are you here? Because God created you. What are you here for? You are here to glorify God. For, he is the one, for whom we exist. Isaiah has a lot for us today. We like to think that because we can't walk down the street and see an idol, that we don't have idols. We do. We are seeping, living in a culture that is seeped with pursuing all kinds of things that are not God. Don't trust this. Don't trust that. Trust the living God. And as it says in Isaiah, fear not, for we're his people and he is with us. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. And you'll hear the echoes of Philippians 2, which Paul quotes these verses. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. God says that in Isaiah. And he fulfills that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you today. We pray that we would just have a sense of awe, a sense of your your majesty, a delight in how good you are, that you are one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the I am who I am. We are wholly and utterly dependent upon you. 